Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, all the way through chapter 5, verse 10, and you can find it printed up here or in your bulletins, and you can follow along as I read it aloud. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he, he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Um, would you bow with me for a brief moment of prayer? Let's pray together. God, we thank you just for this time, and we thank you that we get to, uh, we get to hear from you through your word. And no matter what, um, no matter what that word is, uh, we know that because it comes from you, it's something that we ought to listen to. It's something that we ought to consider. It's something that we ought to ponder, meditate on, and take seriously. But God, we also know that uh, your word is not merely an intellectual exercise, uh, but it's something that we need your Holy Spirit to um, fill our hearts with. And so we pray during this time that uh, that's exactly what you do. Uh, you would fill our hearts with your word. Uh, you would give us a right disposition towards what we are about to hear and that you would help us to see Christ through it, your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you're joining us for the first time or if you haven't been here for a while, we are going through a series on the book of Hebrews and we are calling this series, Jesus is Better. Uh, and this letter is basically addressed to Jewish Christians who were struggling. They were going through some trials and therefore, they were afraid, they were discouraged, and they were at risk of falling away from the faith. And therefore, in order to encourage this community that's going through these trials to persevere in their commitment to Christ, what the author is essentially trying to do is show this community, hey, people, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Now, uh, I don't know if you got the sense through the sermons series that have been preached thus far, but... The book of Hebrews is actually a very difficult book to understand and to study. It's, it's kind of a complex book because uh, one of the things it does is you, it relies on a lot of information from the Old Testament and assumes a, a knowledge of the Old Testament, but also a lot of the theology is just very deep and very profound. But let me also say this. Uh, sometimes we have to uh, read, study, preach from difficult and complex letters in the Bible, even though it is uh, a challenge. And I guess the way I think about it is like this. You know, I think some of you like wine. Uh, it's kind of like a fine wine. 
you know, if you really want to enjoy wine and know why it's better than like those $10 bottles that you may buy, uh, you have to know how to engage with the complexity of the wine, right? The flavors. You have to know how to do that twirling thing and smell it and be like, oh, I taste, uh, I don't know, chocolate or whatever it might be. Uh, you know, the exhortation is going to be similar every week. It's going to be fix your eyes on Jesus and consider him, ponder him, meditate on him, reflect on him uh, in a similar fashion that like a wine connoisseur would really just like think about what am I tasting here? Why is this wine so <laughs> delicious, right? Then you begin to really appreciate uh, a fine wine. And likewise, I think when we hear and understand and reflect and ponder some of the complexities of who Jesus is, uh, and we take the time and the effort to do that, we begin to appreciate how truly wonderful and beautiful and glorious he is. So that's what the book of Hebrews is doing. That's what we're trying to do in this series. Today we're going to look at uh, Jesus, and we're going to say why Jesus is essentially a better high priest for us. Now this is something that we've touched on in previous sermons, and we're actually going to go into more detail in future sermons. But I want us to, at least in this uh, message and from this passage, start thinking about what it means that Jesus is our great high priest. You see, there are two exhortations in this passage, and you see it in the first couple verses. The first one is in chapter 4, verse 14, and it says this, let us hold fast our confession. And the second exhortation is in verse 16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That first exhortation has to do with perseverance. Hold on, right? Hold on to your confession. Hold on to your faith. The second exhortation has to do with movement. Move towards Jesus. Draw near to his throne of grace. And what we want to do as we look at this passage is basically ask, why should we do these things and how should we do these things? And ultimately the answer is going to be because Jesus is the better priest. He is our great high priest. And there are two reasons I think we can see in this passage why he is the better high priest. The first reason is Jesus was tempted yet was without sin. And the second reason is, Jesus is the Son, and yet he suffered. Those are our two points for today. So first, Jesus was tempted, yet without sin. You know, one of the central doctrines of Christianity is the fact that Jesus, uh, God in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, came, he took on human nature in the incarnation. That's what the Christmas holiday is all about. And I know for maybe some of us, some doctrines can feel you know, a little bit abstract, a little bit cold. Uh, but the doctrine of the incarnation, I think, is one of those doctrines that should not feel like that at all. Uh, it should be one of the warmest doctrines because the implication of what happened in the incarnation really shapes the kind of relationship that we can have with Jesus Christ. And those implications are spelled out in uh, chapter 4, verse 15, when it says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's a, that's a remarkable verse if you really, really think about it. Uh, Christianity is unique amongst, I think, all other religions because we worship a God who is not only powerful and glorious and awesome and all of these things that are very high and lofty, but in the person of Jesus Christ, we also worship a God who humbled himself and became like us. And therefore, what he can do, because he humbled himself and became like us, he can sympathize with our weakness in a way that no other God in any other faith can claim to do. And this gives us an opportunity, I think, to just think about sympathy itself. Why is sympathy so important? And what does sympathy actually do? What does it do in a relationship? 
maybe we can start by imagining what would relationship, what would life be like without any kind of sympathy at all? What if you had a hard day at work? You go out to, to have some drinks with a friend and you tell your friend about the hard day you had at work. You say, my boss has been treating me very poorly. My boss has humiliated me on a number of occasions. Uh, my boss has been slandering my name and my reputation with all of my other colleagues. And this is very deeply distressing to me. And imagine your friend looks at back at you and with a very deadpan look says this, at my job, I do my job perfectly and therefore nobody gives me a problem. You should try to do better at work so that you will be more valued at work. Uh, how are you gonna feel if that's how your friend responds, right? Um, my guess is you will not like your friend in that moment. Uh, you will not feel close to your friend at the moment. You will feel like you are not understood and you, know, you might even feel a little bit offended or taken aback by that kind of response. And it certainly doesn't make you feel loved or cared for, right? Uh, now, the problem, if you notice in that response is it's not necessarily untrue. That could be a very true statement, but you see, without the sympathy, um, that's a hard statement and a statement that doesn't really reflect a kind of relationship that a friendship relationship ought to be. The lack of sympathy will make truth sound very cold and very harsh, but on the other hand, let's say after this friend, you're like, I need to talk to another friend, and you meet with another friend, and you share the same thing, and this respo friend responds like this, man, that hurts. You know, I've, I've been there. Uh, I know when a boss has been really nasty. Uh, I know what that feels like. I know how that can really suck the joy out of the work that you do. I know the dread that you feel going to work the next day. I know the paranoia you feel when you hear and see people whispering around you. Uh, I know the anxiety that you feel and the sleepless nights that you have associated with that kind of situation. I, I feel you, right? Um, now, I guess there could be some people who prefer the first friend, right? But I'm going to guess that most of us probably prefer the second friend because there is sympathy. Sympathy is that strange little thing where it doesn't necessarily change anything about the practical circumstances or the practical outcome, but it does have the power to make you feel a little bit better. It has the power to even make you feel closer to the person that you were sharing with. Uh, in many cases, it also makes it easier to receive and embrace truth that you may need to hear. But more importantly, I think, it makes you feel less alone because you have this greater relational connection with somebody who actually understands you, someone who feels your anguish and someone who feels the pain that you are experiencing. You see, when it comes to Jesus, he very well and justifiably so could have been like that first friend, right? Because Jesus himself, he is the only perfect one. He could have said, you fell into temptation again? Is it really that difficult to resist gossip? Is it really that difficult to resist slander? Is it really that difficult to be generous with your money? Is it really that difficult not to go on that website? Get it together, right? Jesus could easily say something like that. And uh, he doesn't though, right? Because he shows sympathy through his incarnation. Now, unfortunately, I will admit to you, when I say that phrase, get it together, um, I'm reminded of myself <laughs> because I say that phrase all the time to my kids, actually to my oldest kid. I say, get it together. Uh, let me tell you, that kind of communication rarely yields positive fruit. If anything, what it does is it makes my oldest uh, more upset because it shows a lack of sympathy, lack of understanding. Um, <clears throat> and on days when my parenting is... Uh, a little bit better, 
Uh, I make an effort to try to, to sympathize when my oldest child is upset. And, uh, you know, if she's throwing a tantrum, you know, kind, it kind of does make a difference when I say something like this. Uh, you know, I know you're upset, right? And I know you're upset because you were expecting to be able to play more before you go to bed, but, and you're really disappointed because now you have to go to sleep and you just want to play, right? That kind of response is a lot softer, and that, that calms her down a little bit more than, get it together! Uh, and, you know, when you show some sympathy, it, it sets up, I think, a better relationship and makes the truth a little less cold, right? Uh, so I can say... I understand you're upset and it's bedtime and you have to get some rest and you have to skip this time to play and you have to go to sleep uh, because it's bedtime and you have to go to school tomorrow and all of these things, right? And if I show some sympathy first, she actually receives it better. Now, let me be honest because if you uh, were to see me at home, if she were to actually listen to any of these sermons, good thing she's too young <laughs> to not listen to it. She'd be like, Dad, you never say that, right? <laughs> So let me be honest, I, that's, that's not a, a common occasion. I wish it were more common. Most of the time I go, get it together. <laughs> um, but you, you reflect on sympathy and the importance of sympathy and what it does. It, it brings a relationship closer together and it makes truth a lot less cold to receive. Jesus himself, he, he could say get it together, but he doesn't say get it together in a way that is relationally cold. That's not to say that he doesn't exhort us to do certain things. That's not to say he doesn't warn us. That's not to say that he even doesn't discipline us, which uh, he certainly does. But what it, that does say is Jesus is one who is able to sympathize with our weakness because he was tempted as we are in every respect. And therefore, any exhortation and any kind of discipline comes with a sense of relational warmth. Now, here's the difference. He was tempted, yet without sin. We are tempted, yet with sin, right? He was tempted, yet without sin. Does the fact that he was tempted, yet without sin, increase or decrease his ability to sympathize with us? Think about that. You might say it probably decreases his ability to sympathize with us because you'd say, like, you know, Jesus is God, Jesus is perfect, and he's without sin, so he probably could not understand how difficult it is to resist temptation. But I think I would argue the exact opposite. Um, because he was without sin, because he resisted temptation to the point of being without sin all the way to the end, I think Jesus probably knows better than anybody else the difficulty of resisting that temptation. Let me give you an example. This comes from uh, the previous pastor here. I remember him giving this example, so uh, I'm taking it from him. But he says, you know, imagine you have two children, and you tell them, you tell these two children, you are not allowed to eat these chocolate chip cookies before dinner. And they're both looking at this cookie, and it's soft, it's warm, it's gooey, chocolate chip cookie, and it's like, oh, it's so good, so delicious, I want it so badly. What if one child gives in to that temptation, whoosh, right? <laughs> and eats that cookie, and the other child's like, no, I'm not supposed to eat this cookie. I have to wait. I have to wait. Which child knows <clears throat> how difficult it is to resist eating that cookie better? I think it's the one who resisted temptation and held out until the end because that child had to endure, right, looking at that cookie and smelling that cookie and experience the pain of not actually eating that cookie. You know, in a similar fashion, Jesus, he was without sin, but he experienced temptation full on, and yet he resisted that temptation until the end. So who of anybody can really truly sympathize with our weakness, with the power of temptation, than the one who resisted temptation until the end? 
it would be Jesus Christ. And he can sympathize with our weakness more than anyone else, not in spite of uh, being without sin, but because he was without sin and he knows what it's like to resist temptation until the end. That's the first reason. Jesus is a better high priest because he can sympathize with us, because he has been tempted yet was without sin. Here's the second point. Jesus is a better high priest because he is the son and yet he suffered. Uh, the previous chapters have been making that point. Jesus is different because he's not simply just a prophet. He's not just a, a, a servant like Moses, but he is God's only begotten son. According to chapter 5, verse 2, every high priest chosen from among men, says this, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. But because he himself is beset with weakness, every high priest is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. You know what that's pointing out? It's pointing this out, the fact that every high priest that was appointed in the Old Testament, every human high priest, they were imperfect. They were imperfect. Why were they imperfect? Because they themselves were weak. They themselves had sin. And therefore, what they had to do is they had to offer sacrifices, not only on behalf of the sins of the people, but they also had to offer uh, sacrifices on behalf of their own sin. They were an imperfect high priest. It's a little bit like maybe an attorney uh, on trial for a crime, representing another person on trial for a crime at the same time. And, uh, you know, maybe that can work out, but something about that just doesn't feel entirely right. And, you know, the system of the Old Testament worked for a period of time, but that wasn't God's ultimate intention in terms of securing uh, atonement for the people of God. That wasn't God's intention in terms of ending sin once and for all. The only way to make things right in the system is you, got, you need a clean attorney, right? You need an attorney who's not guilty of committing a crime. And Jesus, he fills that role as our great high priest. But even Jesus didn't exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed to it. That's what the passage says. The uh, father appointed the son to be a high priest in order to act on behalf of men in relation to God. But there is something special about being a high priest who is also a son in the ways that he himself as a son can relate to God on our behalf. As a son, not only is he perfect, but he also holds this special status as a son in order to be this perfect mediator for us. Uh, I read this story this week that I think illustrates this well, and the story goes like this. Uh, it takes place in the Civil War, and once upon a time, there was a soldier in the Union Army, and this soldier lost both his older brother and his father in the Civil War. And so he went to Washington, D.C., and he says, I, I need to see President Abraham Lincoln and ask for an exemption for military service. Uh, and the reason why he was asking for an exemption is not because he didn't want to give his life to the war efforts, but he wanted to go back home and help his sister and help his mother with uh, the farm and uh, make sure that they're okay because he was the only male left in the family. So he goes to the White House, and he goes to the doors of the White House, and he says, can I see President Lincoln? And he's told, you can't see the president. We're in the middle of a war. He is super busy. The president is a very busy man. Get out of here. Go away, son. Get back out there and fight like you're supposed to. So he leaves, and he's very disheartened. He sits on a park bench not too far away from the White House. And this little boy sees him and comes up to him and says to him, soldier, you look really sad. What's wrong? What happened? 
And the soldier looks at this child and he begins to share about what happened to his father and what happened to his brother and how they died in the war and how he's the only male left in the family and how he desperately needs to get back to his family and to help his mom and his sister. This little boy took the soldier by the hand and he says, come here. And he leads him around to the back of the White House. They go through the back door. They walk past the guards. They walk past the generals. They walk past the high-ranking government officials until they get to the president's office itself. This boy doesn't even knock on the door. He just opens the door and goes in. And there's President Lincoln. And he's with the Secretary of the State. He's looking over the plans on, the, on his desk of the, of the battle and the war. And President looks up and he says, what can I do for you, Todd? Todd says, Daddy, this soldier needs to talk to you. And right then and there, this soldier has a chance to plead his case to the president and eventually gets exempted from military service due to his particular hardship. Isn't that a wonderful story that really illustrates what it means that we have the son and how the son gives us access to the father? You see, through Jesus, we have such access to the father where he brings us to the father's throne of grace and he says, Daddy, here is someone who needs to talk to you. Uh, if you've ever seen that movie, Lincoln, uh, you also know that Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert Todd Lincoln, uh, he was initially prevented from joining the army and joining the war efforts because his mother refused to allow him to uh, go into war. And the reason is because they had already lost one son and she could not bear losing another son. And so it was a point of tension between uh, President Lincoln and his wife, but eventually what happened is his son, Robert Todd Lincoln, joined the Civil War efforts toward the end of the war, and because you're president, you can do whatever you want, so he assigns him to a post where there's not actual combat, where it was towards the end of the war, and there was a lower chance of death where he probably would not die in the war efforts. Being the son of the president gives you those kind of perks and those kind of advantages, and Abraham Lincoln was able to use his power and authority for his son to protect his son from death. You know what sets apart Jesus as a son from Robert Todd Lincoln as a son? Is that Jesus' father doesn't send him to a place to protect him from death, but the father sends the son Jesus to the very front lines of the spiritual war to face certain death, sealing his fate through suffering on a cross. But that doesn't mean it wasn't a struggle or a difficult thing to do for Jesus, right? We see that in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Uh, this reminds me of the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you've never read that, basically Jesus is at a place where he is extremely distressed. He is extremely shaken because he knows soon he will have to face the prospect of dying upon a cross. And, uh, you know, you ask yourself, what would it mean as a son to be sent to do this work, to die upon a cross? It would mean that as a son, he would have to suffer and experience this excruciating death. It would mean that as a son, he would experience uh, a lot of shame and a lot of condemnation. But I think what really shakes Jesus in this time when he prays at the prospect of the cross, and probably the reason why he prays with loud cries and tears, is because he knows as a son, he would have to face and experience the full judgment, anger, and wrath of God for our sin. That he would experience that himself as he dies on the cross. 
You know, the greater the relational intimacy, I think, the more painful the subsequent distance is, right? Uh, you know, if, you, if you're dating someone, if you go on like one date with like a random stranger and you're like, it's not working out, you don't care, right? But if you're in a relationship with X amount of years and you share life experiences together and that relationship breaks up, it's more painful because there's greater relational intimacy. I used to have Twitter. I don't have Twitter anymore. But, uh, you know, if some s stranger like tweeted me and said, I hate you. <laughs> I don't care, right? Who are you? You know, if a friend of my wife who uh, I don't really know very well and I rarely interact with said, you know, Jen, I hate Sam. You know, it would bother me a little bit, but I still wouldn't care that much. <laughs> if one of my friends who uh, I've been friends with for years said, I hate you, that would hurt, right? I'd be, ah, why do you hate me? I'll try to reconcile that relationship. You know, if that friendship ended, it would hurt, but I think I'd still be able to move on with my life. If my wife or my children or even my parents said, I hate you, that, w that would shake me to the core right? Why? Because there is greater relational intimacy. Do you know what it means when that Jesus is the Son? It meant that he had the most intimate relationship with his Father. When Jesus died on the cross, that relationship is temporarily severed because Jesus is our great high priest. He offers himself as a sacrifice. He becomes the what uh, the Bible calls a propitiation of our sin, which basically means he receives the, the anger and the wrath of God to satisfy um, justice for our sins. When you have that kind of relationship as the son had with the father, an eternal relationship, can you imagine the kind of pain and anguish that would cause Jesus because he was the son? And yet he does it. Why? Because he loves us because that is the way to salvation, because that is the way to end sin and death, because that is the way to end suffering and tears, because that is a way to usher in a new creation. That is a way to give us hope. And so Jesus experiences that, and he takes it, and he dies on the cross because he is our better high priest. Now, there is also something I should explain about verse 7 that and it's a little bit confusing, uh, and I had to think about it, but it says Jesus offered prayers to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And you kind of think about it, he was heard. How was he heard? Because Jesus eventually died. I think the reason why it says he was heard is because of the resurrection. God raised Jesus from the dead in power and glory, and Jesus was ultimately vindicated and justified because he was resurrected. And even so, the resurrection, even though Jesus resurrected from the dead, guess what? It still does not negate what Jesus learned through what he suffered, and therefore it does not negate his sympathy for us. When he sees our struggle, when he sees our addiction, when he sees our depression, when he sees our sorrow, when he sees our fear, when he sees our anxiety, when he sees our temptation, when he sees our brokenness, he can sympathize. He can sympathize with our weakness. But as a one who has been raised to glory and ascended to the right hand of God the Father, 
one with power, he can also help us. He can help us with power. He can help us with intercession. Is that not why the exhortation 416 is even possible? We can, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is only true if Jesus can sympathize with us, that we come with confidence, not, oh, oh God, what are you going to do, but really with confidence, knowing he understands, right? And yet we can come expecting help in time of need because he's also the ascended, resurrected Christ who reigns with power. We don't approach the throne of grace as though we were approaching the kind of parent that yells at their kids and says, get it together. That's not how we approach God we approach the throne of grace as though you were approaching the kind of parent that says, son, daughter, I know what you're going through. I've been there. I can help. If that is true, friends, what should ever prevent us from coming to Jesus, even in the midst of our darkest seasons, even in the midst of those times that we are the least proud of? What would hold us back from coming to a high priest such as this, a better high priest. If this is true, and if this is what we believe, I would dare say there is no reason in the world that should prevent us from coming to the throne of grace. No reason in the world if we understand who Jesus is and how he relates to us, both as a sympathetic high priest and also as the resurrected Christ who reigns with power. Let's pray and let's come to him.